0: Hebrews 11, start in verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. Would you bow with me? Thank you, our Father, for this word. We've read three passages this morning, all of which have encouraged and stimulated our souls in different ways. We've been reminded to seek You above all things and to find our satisfaction in You. And that doing so, we have nothing to fear in this life. We have been reminded of the end of the story and the glories that await us. Physical, certainly. Awe-making visions of what heaven will be like. And especially the glory of what we will be in heaven, and the removal of the curse, and the ability to see our Savior and our God face to face. That which no man has ever been able to see and live will be our eternal, unending preoccupation. And we thank you for that promise and reminder. And we thank you for the lives of faithful men in this passage who have walked this world anticipating the next and have done so not perfectly but honorably. And they serve as a reminder for us of where we might go and how we might live. Might we emulate their lives. Might we learn the lessons this morning that they have laid down for us that we might walk faithfully with you, and so that you will find no shame in us either. So we commend our time to you. Would you guide us in this word? Would you give me clarity? Would you give me accuracy so that I rightly handle this word that is truth? And might we be transformed by it and even be led in deep and satisfying worship and delight in you? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I came across a list of some important life lessons for us to learn this week. Let me just share a few of them. Perhaps perhaps some of you will gain some things from these. Lesson number one, I've learned that you can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. That's important. I've just learned that when I get my room the way I like it, mom makes me clean it up. A little more seriously, I've learned that silent company is often more healing than words of advice. I've learned that wherever I go, the world's worst drivers have followed me there. (laughs) I've learned that children and grandparents are natural allies. I don't know if that was supposed to be a blessing or a curse for the person that said that. I've learned that making a living is not the same thing as making a life. And said, one 92-year-old, I've learned that I still have a lot to learn. Isn't that the truth? Some of those lessons were learned with difficulty, perhaps with suffering. I think about that six-year-old and the broccoli and the milk. Wouldn't it be nice to learn some of life's harder or more important lessons from the life of others? And that's actually what the writer of Hebrews is doing for us this morning in the passage that is before us. As we come to Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16, we are coming to the center point of the chapter. Now you're saying, well, Terry, I know you're not very good at math. You've told us that, but we know that 13 is not half of 40. Uh, so I get that. It's not the center point in the number of verses, but it is the center point in the theme of the chapter. Where's Keith? Keith, I did this for you. I have a chart-ish thing. Um, and it's for you. It's actually on the back of your bulletin, so you, or bullet back of your outline, so you don't have to write it out. What we have in Hebrews 11 is a chiastic structure. So he starts with a variety of themes, and he moves inward, makes a point in the middle of the chapter, and then moves backward out, looking at those same themes in reverse order. So what we find in verse 4 is, is Abel's example of suffering because of faith. Okay, I blanked out. There we go. go. Verse 5, we have Enoch's example of triumph by faith. Verse 6, the reward of faith in seeking God. Verse 7, Noah's perseverance in faith. Verses 8 through 10 and verse 12, the promise to Abraham by faith. Verse 11, Sarah's conception of Isaac by faith. So he's been moving in, developing this theme of what does faith look like. And now he's going to start after verse 16, moving outward in the same pattern. So paralleling Sarah in verse 11, in verses 17 and 19, we have Abraham's offering of Isaac by faith. Paralleling Abraham's promise, we have the promises made to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in verses 20 and following. Paralleling Noah's perseverance in faith, we have Moses' perseverance in faith in verses 23 to 29. Paralleling the promise of God's reward for those who seek Him as we have the reward of faith in conquering Jericho in verses 30 and 31. Paralleling Enoch's example of triumph by faith, we have the examples of many who triumphed by faith in verses 32 to 35. And then finally, we have the example of many who suffered because of their faith at the end of this chapter, verses 35 to 38, paralleling Abel's suffering. And the middle is verses 13 to 16, and this is the point that the writer's trying to make. This is what this entire chapter is about. This is the life lessons that he would have us learn, the lessons of faith. I see Keith smiling that I've made a chart. He's so proud of me. Um, He's a chart guy. I'm not as much a chart guy, so there's to you, Keith. I've learned from you. I've learned something from you. This is all about the lessons of faith. What What does God have us to know about faith? What should we learn about living the life of faith? This is, in a sense, tagging on to the section we looked at previously. And the theme runs similarly. Living by faith means we act on God's promises, even when they aren't yet received. There are circumstances in life when we know the promises of God. We know what God has said He will do and He will provide. And we trust Him. But on this side of eternity, we don't see it yet. And living by faith means we act on those promises, even when we don't yet receive them. In verses 8 to 12, we looked at how we can live that way. In this this passage, verses 13 to 16, we see the lessons of faith. What are the examples of Abraham and the others that have preceded already? What have they taught us about living by faith? And what we're going to find in this passage is six characteristics of living by faith. Six characteristics of what a life lived by faith looks like. Verse 13. Live by faith by being confident in God. That's the first life lesson. If you want to live by faith. Live by being confident in God. I don't know about your life, but in my life there are disappointments. It's a cliche, but it's true. Life is filled with disappointments. Marriages, friendships, parenting, children, jobs, finances, houses, locations, places we live, cell phones. Especially cell phones are disappointing. Meals, postal deliveries, all kinds of parts of our lives Both the sublime and the ridiculous, the important and the insignificant, all of them don't live up to our expectations. And the writer in verse 13 tells us that this is not unusual. This is the norm for the greatest people on earth and this is the norm even for God's greatest people. That there will be disappointments and sorrows and griefs and emptiness. Notice what he says in verse 13. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises. God said, I will, and they didn't get the fullness of it. All of them. All these. The question, one of the questions about this passage is, who are the all these? And there are some that would say that it's everyone in this chapter so far, starting with Abel in verse 4 and moving through Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob in verses 9 through 12. And there are others who say, well, actually, it's only those who receive promises from God. So he's talking specifically about Abraham, Sarah, and then the progeny that flow from Abraham and Sarah. And so he's only talking about them. My supposition, I'm not dying on this hill, but My inclination is to think that the writer is summarizing everybody that he's talked about in this chapter so far. That's the natural way to read the word all, all these, is to naturally assume that he's speaking about everyone. And while there aren't necessarily promises made to every single one, most of them did have promises or certainly implied promises. Abraham, or excuse me, Abel offered a sacrifice expecting the blessing of God. So he was anticipating something. He. We may not have had an explicit promise from God, but he was anticipating something from God when he made his sacrifice, and instead of receiving what he anticipated from God, he was killed by his brother instead. Enoch didn't die, but he also endured hardship on this earth before he entered into glory, and he didn't realize all the things that he might have expected on this earth. There was something that was lacking Noah did receive a promise and likewise experienced mocking and saw the futility and rebellion of the world. And frankly, some of the promise that Abraham or excuse me that Noah received he didn't want to receive. I'm going to kill everybody except you and your family through a flood. And he did receive that and didn't see the fulfillment of all the Noahic promise after that. Abraham was promised a land, a seed, a blessing, and never came close to getting the full fulfillment of that promise. Nor did Sarah, nor did Isaac, nor did Jacob. Now, if you have read Hebrews carefully, you might be saying, Oh, wait a minute, Pastor Terry. Chapter 6, verse 15, speaking about Abraham, says, God made a promise to him, verse 14, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply You, verse 15, and so having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. So isn't the writer contradicting contradicting himself? In verse chapter 6 he says, Abraham did get the promise, and now he says in chapter 11, he didn't get the promise. What's going on? Well, yes, he did receive the promise in that he had a son that was born to him, Isaac, that God had said he would get. Uh, from Sarah though they were 190 years of age respectively but what he didn't receive is the full fulfillment he got some of the land he didn't get all of the land that was promised him he didn't see his seed and his progeny as as numerous as the sand of the sea and he certainly didn't see the spiritual blessing that would come f- to him through the promised messiah that would ultimately come from him so he re- received something of the promise but not the whole thing. What the writer wants us to see in verse 11 is that all of these left this world anticipating something from God that they did not receive here. And in fact, that's not just true of those who preceded in this chapter, but it will be true of everyone in this chapter. At the end of the chapter, verse 39, And all these, again speaking about everyone in this chapter, all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They all walked out of this world lacking. Yet notice that the writer says in verse 13, Not all these died, but all these died in faith. In faith. The the phrase that he uses here in verse 13 is a little bit different than he has used previously. So we've seen this pattern all the way through the chapter, right? By faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, etc. By faith, by faith, by faith. And here he doesn't use the phrase by faith, but he uses the phrase according to faith. It's a subtle difference. Perhaps it's just simply a stylistic difference. But I think he is making a point and that is that they lived their lives and when they died they were living according to the pattern of what a life of faith looks like they had patterned their self, themselves after faithful living they exemplified what faithful living to god looks like they they didn't give up they continued living faithfully to the lord and how did they die In faith or according to faith with God. What did they do that demonstrated they had faith? Notice the middle of the verse. All these from Abel to Jacob. Saw and welcomed them the promises from a distance. While they did not receive the complete fulfillment of the promises. They saw enough of the promises that they were able to to welcome them. They said oh it's coming. I see it. I see what it will look like. And I'm ready for it. Come Lord Jesus. They didn't say come Lord Jesus. Because they didn't know those words yet. But that's what we say, isn't it? Come Lord Jesus. We're looking. We're seeing. and We're welcoming. Embracing. Ready for the fulfillment. All of these. In seeing and welcoming. Are living out what faith looks like that he explained for us in verse one. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I'm confident it's coming. God's promised it. I know it's coming. I have conviction for things though I do not yet see them in their entirety. I'm resting in them. I'm confident though I still though I don't yet possess its fulfillment. What all these did was exemplified, in the life of Moses. Remember Moses? Amazing man of God. We'll see him in a few weeks in this chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 3. The nation is poised on the land of Canaan. They're about to enter the land of Canaan that would become Israel, the promised land. They're about to re-enter. And Moses pleads to the Lord and he says this, verse 23, I, Deuteronomy 3 I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O oh Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such, wor- might- such works and mighty acts as yours. Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. You promised, let me go. And you know, out of his disobedience, God had said he couldn't go. And God answers him immediately after that prayer. Deuteronomy 3.26 But the Lord was angry with me on your account. And he would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough. Speak to me no more of this matter. Yet go up to the top of Pisgah. And lift up your eyes to the west and the north and the south and east. And see it with your eyes. For you shall not cross over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go across at the head of his people, and he will give them as an inheritance the land which you will see. We know from chapter 34 that that is exactly what happened. Moses looked. He saw. He welcomed. He trusted. He was confident. That God would give what he promised. Listen. All of these. Had the promises of God. And that was enough. To keep them going. They were confident in God. And when they didn't receive the immediate provision from God. They weren't discouraged. They weren't dissuaded. Being. Being confident in God. They were patient with God. They understood that God's slowness, if you will, does not equal his inability. They they trusted that he would fulfill his promises at the right time. They were confident, as one writer says, that God's promise is as good as the reality. And if you and I want to live by faith, we live in confidence. God's promised. I can be sure. I may not see the fullness here, but I can be sure that he will see me through. Live by faith by being confident in God. Secondly, live by faith by being a stranger in this world. Middle of verse 13, having seen and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They could see and welcome, they could delight in and embrace what they didn't receive fully because they recognized that they were strangers here, that they were exiles here on earth. In fact, this is Abraham's own statement. Remember, Abraham is promised by God in Genesis chapter 12 that he's going to be given this massive piece of land for the people that will come from him. And he spends the rest of his life in that land. And then when his wife Sarah died, he didn't own a single piece of land in his land. And he had to go buy a burial plot for Sarah. And this is what he said as he went to the sons of Heth to buy some land from them. He says in Genesis 23, 4, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I'm a stranger. I'm an exile. This is Abraham's statement. Even in his promised land, he understands this isn't the lasting place. This isn't the final place where he will end up. That's also Jacob's testimony in Genesis 47. It's also the psalmist's testimony in Psalm 119. Verse 19, the psalmist writes this, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. I'm a stranger here. This isn't my place. This isn't my home. Listen, God's faithful people have always recognized that this world is a temporary residence. It is not our home. We are foreigners living in a strange land. And the longer we live here, the stranger it gets first peter an apostle of jesus christ peter to those who reside as aliens scattered through pontus galatia cappadocia asia bithynia we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I think he thinks of their, them there as aliens, mostly as those who have been scattered from a land, away from a land that belonged to them, Israel. And now they're all throughout the Asia Minor and the rest of the known world. But I think there's an implication that they're another kind of alien as well. This is not their place, no matter where they are. Because he says also in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You're an alien here. This isn't your home. This isn't your stuff. These people, these faithful people in Hebrews 11 could live faithfully to God on this earth because they were only very loosely attached to this earth. They recognized its foreignness. In fact, not only did they recognize that they were foreigners, but notice what the writer says. He says, having confessed. So they confessed and they kept on confessing, saying we're strangers and exiles. That word confession means to give agreement to, to affirm the truthfulness of that statement. So when they say, when the writer says they confess that he's saying, they're admitting, they're acknowledging, they're agreeing with God. This isn't home. You're a stranger here. We, we might say it this way, they're happy exiles because they know they've got something else that's waiting for them. How content were they? Jacob would spend 20 years in Mesopotamia. He would go to an area near Haran where Abraham went as he left Ur, and he went way north along the Tigris and Euphrates to Haran, still part of Mesopotamia, before he dropped south down into the land of Canaan that would become Israel. Jacob would go there for 20 years, running away from his brother, and then working for his crooked uh, father-in-law Laban, uncle rather, and father-in-law ultimately for Rachel and Leah and building up his flocks. Twenty years he's there. Sounds like home to me. At the end of his time with Laban, he says in Genesis 30, Can I go to my own place and to my own country? It's not home. This world isn't home. Similarly, when Abraham and his family left Ur, they fully left it. He never owned land in Canaan, Canaan, but when Sarah died there, there was no thought about taking her back to Ur of the Chaldees. He bought a place in Canaan. In fact, we'll see this in a couple of weeks. Joseph, as he's dying, gave orders about his body and said, don't leave me in Egypt. This isn't my home. This isn't my place. Wherever they were were on this earth, these faithful people were living in a foreign land and they were looking for their ultimate home. Says one commentator, at no time did Abraham or Isaac or Jacob put down such roots as to cause them to feel that they really belonged to any certain spot on earth. They held it lightly. It's not my home. Brothers and sisters, one thing will keep us from being faithful to the Lord. And that is when we become more attached to this world and the things of this world than to God and the things of His world. There is a temptation to fix our eyes on the world at the expense of Christ. And we forget our ultimate end. And we forget our ultimate joy. That's why we read Psalm 27 this morning. When you said to me, Seek my face. My heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Oh, don't let me get attached to this place. Let me get attached to you. And the place that's coming. Scripture never warns us. About being too heavenly minded. Scripture never warns us about not being worldly minded enough. There are no dangers associated with looking to the future of our heavenly home. And there are uncounted dangers. With looking at this place. As our home. Live by faith. You want to be faithful to the Lord? Live by faith to Him by being a stranger in this world, looking past this world to the promise of the next. Thirdly, third lesson to learn from these who've preceded: live by faith by being ambitious for home. The apostle lays out the primary principle in verse 13, verses 14 to 16. Build on that. Notice the connection at the beginning of verse 14. For those who say such things, what things, who who are the people who are talking, the people who are making the confession about their strangeness on this earth in verse 13, because, or since, or here's some reasons... For their attitudes and how they can say this is a a strange place. And the first thing he notes in verse 13, verse 14 is that people who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They're looking for something. They're seeking. That word has the idea of having a strong ambition, a yearning, a craving. They're ambitious. They're aggressive. In their pursuit of this thing. And what is it that they're pursuing? They are seeking. Pursuing. Ambitious for a country. Of their own. It's an interesting word. That word. Country of their own. Is actually one word in the Greek. And it's a word that we might translate. Fatherland. Or homeland. It's used most often in the gospels. To refer to Jesus and his hometown. Of Nazareth. It's clear, notice that, verse 14, it's clear that when they say that, it's really true. They have as their ambition a homeland. And they do not consider this world to be their home. Says one commentator, they had no fatherland on earth. Nothing here to hold them. Nothing here that would make them say on the other side, well, let me go back. I forgot something. You know, the world is attracted to the idea of going home. Some of you in my generation or older might remember that E.T. wanted to go home. Songs are sung about going home. TV shows. Even whole networks are designed to building home. And the perfect home. We dream about getting home for Christmas. Home is sentimentalized in our culture, and it speaks to an unfulfilled longing. People are wanting something that they recognize implicitly, that they're not getting. They keep looking. And the believer understands that when he is on this Earth, he's not in his homeland. He's not gotten home yet. The world is a workshop, if you will. It's the place where we labor and work until we go home. But it's just that. It's a workshop. And a workshop isn't home. Now some of you might like your workshop. Somebody came to my office the other day and they, I think it was the first time they'd been there, they were looking around and they were saying, wow, there's a lot of books here. I said, Yeah, does it feel like the walls are kind of closing in on you exactly? <laughs> oh, I walk in there and it's like, Ah, it's home. And some of you have a workshop like that or a sewing room or a garden, but it's a workshop. It's not home. It's not your final destination. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus makes clear in John 17 that we don't flee from this world. We're here. We're here to work. We're here to labor. So we don't flee it. But we also don't have this world as our ambition. There is no good end for those who desire for this world and live for this world only. The Apostle John makes that clear, First John chapter 2. He says about a group of people that had been in the church in Ephesus 2.19, nineteen. First John. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. There's a doom that hangs over that verse. We don't live for here. We live for there. The believer is always looking forward to his final, genuine home. I'll just tease it. Maybe this afternoon, tomorrow morning, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and read that chapter. Here's how Paul explains the difference between life here in the workshop and life there in home we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down speaking about our body we have a building from god a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens for indeed in this house we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven inasmuch as we having been having put it on will not be found naked for indeed while we are in this tent we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life do you hear what he's saying whatever you have here it's mortal and it's not life oh there are good things to be had There are delights that God has given us but they're not the fullness of life. Don't long for those. You're only, going to long, you're only going to receive those when you leave here. So he says in verse 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. To be at home. When we're there, we're finally Home. And these who have preceded in this chapter were active in this world. They were productive in this world. They engaged in the things of this world and business in this world, but this wasn't home. It was a workshop until they get home. Says Richard Koken in his helpful book, Faith for Life, a book about Hebrews 11 Christians will always feel frustrated by the godlessness of our national governments and media because earthly nations are not run in accordance with the Word of God as heaven is. Heaven is our homeland now. The lesson of living by faith is that we live by faith by being ambitious for home. Fourthly, we live by faith by discerning two realities how do how do we keep looking towards our ultimate goal of heaven we can look back on things on this earth and say that was really good i really enjoyed that we can think about a meal that we prepared and say okay where did i get that where did i get that piece of meat where was that recipe and what was that spice that i put on that and we think back and we remember and and we anticipate and Even as I'm thinking about things, there's a little drool that starts at the corner of the mouth, right? Because I'm looking back and I'm remembering. And we can think about vacations or events, conversations in the same kind of way. It's hard to think about heaven in that way because none of us has been there. We've not seen it. Oh, we've experienced the blessings of God. We've read the scriptures about what heaven will be like. But it, it's hard to imagine and anticipate what's it going to be like. I don't know how many times over the years I've thought as, as I've, I've been at someone's funeral or I've conducted a funeral, I've been standing at a gravesite or standing at a coffin and I've, and I've looked down at that believer in Christ who's vacated that body and I've thought, what are you seeing now? And Just Longing. To see it. Well they didn't see it. But they anticipated. And so the writer tells us about the thought process of these people of faith in verse 15. Indeed. If they had been thinking about that country from which they went out. If they had been thinking about it. If they had been not just thinking about it. If they had been remembering it. If they had been meditating it. On it. The idea is not just that the thought crossed their minds, but but they're engaged in thinking about it, proactive in thinking about it, intense in their thoughts about it, cultivating a, a longing and a desire, maybe even cultivating a regret for what they had lost. If, if Abraham had been thinking about Ur and all of the all of the things that were going on in Ur, that was an advanced city in that culture in that region and thinks about what life was like there instead of living in a tent where he's living in a land that isn't his and he's not getting anything of it if that had been his meditation he could have, he could have fallen into grumpiness and discontentment and disillusionment but he's not thinking that way notice the text tells us if that had been his thought he would have had opportunity to return he could have made any excuse for returning it, nobody would have nobody would have looked down on him and said, "What are you doing, Abraham?" They'd have all said, "Yeah, I get it. I know why you're going back. If I was in your spot, I would too, but they didn't think of their former lands or even of the unfulfilled promises in that way. So they weren't even tempted to go back to their old way of life. In fact, Abraham warned his servant, when his servant goes to look for a a bride for Isaac, he warns him, don't go back to Mesopotamia. Don't go back. Don't get a wife from him, for him, from there. The writer is implying that these faithful followers of God were constantly discerning the good from the bad, the better from the good, the best from the better. They're constantly looking and saying, what's best? Where's my heavenly home? It was essential in that day to discern between that which is appealing and temporal and that which was lasting That's what Moses would do. Verse 25, he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He's discerning. He's evaluating. What do I get now? What's awaiting for me in the future? And notice this, what the writer is wanting us to see is that these faithful people did not turn back. Having placed their faith in Christ... They did not return to the past and did not return to the ways of the world. They understood the cost of living in the world. They understood the cost of living according to the the world's belief system. And the writer would have his readers who are tempted in a similar way to go back and say, Jesus isn't everything that I anticipated. I haven't gotten the promise yet. In fact, life has gotten worse right now and we're suffering, He would have them to see. Don't go back. Discern the difference between this world and the next world. I am more than a little concerned as I look at our world and as I look at the church in this world that we are far more desirous of a better world now than we are of a better world later. And I am more than a little concerned that our worldview is more shaped by Twitter than Scripture. And if your worldview is shaped by Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, please stay off TikTok, you won't have a worldview that says, I don't care about here give me what lies ahead and you will always be frustrated oh live by faith by discerning the two realities and don't turn back fifthly live by faith by cultivating a better desire we saw this in verse 14 right they make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own they're 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 going for their homeland Verse 16, he reiterates that and expands a little bit. But as it is, they desire a better country. And here he's explicit, that is a heavenly one. The word desire here is slightly different than the one in verse 14. It is the idea of reaching out or stretching out for something. They're aspiring for something. They're grasping for it. They're working for it. They're cultivating a desire for it. And what they want is that thing... That is better. The word better is a word that's used repeatedly throughout this book. And and the writer is constantly reminding us through this book that Jesus is better. And what Jesus gives is better. He gives a better hope, chapter 7. He gives a better covenant, chapter 7. He gives a better promise, chapter 8. God gives a better resurrection, chapter 10. The sacrifice of Christ is better, chapter 9. He has a better blood than Abel, chapter 9, excuse me, 12. And of course, undergirding all of it is the central truth of the book. Christ is better. When he had made purification of sins, chapter 1, verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He is better than all. And here, in this verse, what is better is the country that lies ahead. And if we have missed the point, he's explicit. He's talking about heaven. This is not the only time he's told the readers about the superiority of heaven and a heavenly home. He says something similar in chapter 10, really in the prologue or the preface to chapter 11, verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Heaven is better. Because it lasts. Everything I have on this earth is destined to fail. Everything. Not in heaven. Heaven is better also. Chapter 11, verse 40. Last verse in this chapter. They did not receive what was promised, but they gained approval from God because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They will be made perfect. On this earth, they didn't have it, but they will be. And that perfection comes in glory. Heaven is better because it is there that all things will be made perfect. And so he says, verse 16, that's their desire. They live for heaven, not for earth. Once in heaven, no one is going to look back longingly for earth. No one. I don't know about you, when I read John chapter 11, Jesus intentionally delays Himself going back to Mary and Martha's after Lazarus dies to make sure that Lazarus is in the word of the day, good and dead and in the tomb and as after 4 days he brings him out we don't know it Lazarus said, but don't you know that having seen the glories of heaven, he looked around here and said, seriously y'all? There's nothing here. That compares to the glory of heaven. The writer wants us to be purposeful, intentional, in cultivating heart longings for heaven and to diminish our satisfaction and desire for earth and worldly pursuits. He's not saying don't work for earth, don't work on earth, don't be fruitful, but he is saying don't find satisfaction. With something that is secondary. Cultivate a better desire, a lasting desire. Lastly, live by faith by being secure in God's plan. End of verse 16. They desire a better country, a heavenly one, and the summation of their lives. Therefore, Because of their faithfulness to Him. Because of their trust in Him. That flows out into a life lived for Him. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. What's the payoff? No shame from God over you. That's the negative way of saying what he's already said in verse 6. That he is a rewarder of those who seek Him. God rewards those who have faith in Him. God is delighted to call them mine. That's why we began with John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is an audacious statement that God honors those who are His. Brother and sister, friend, if you are in Christ, And you are faithful to Him. He doesn't shrink back and say, Oh no, I don't want Him. Have you seen Terry lately? Have you seen his grumpies? His impatience? Have you watched him driving down 377? Fussing under his breath about the drivers in front of him. Yeah, they followed me here. I'm the reason. You know what's amazing about this is you read this and you go, "Wow, well, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. You can't read through that list and, and but think about flaws. But Noah's drunkenness and Abraham's repeated lying and Sarah laughing at God. And these are flawed people. Their faith was weak at times. But they had faith. And God honored them and kept them. It is remarkable, brother and sister, that when you live for God, no matter how flawed, how weak, when you live for Him, He is not ashamed of you. He delights in you and as part of that delight verse sixteen we know that he is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared it. Notice God isn't scrambling to get it ready. It's finished. Nothing remains To be done for the construction of this city. They desired a heavenly city that was promised for them. We know that in verse 10. And he has prepared it for them. It is fulfilled. It is ready. It is waiting. When they get there. The city is the heavenly Jerusalem. We know that from chapter 12. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are rolled in heaven. We've come, chapter 13, verse 14, to the city which is to come. We, we We are anticipating from this verse what God has created for those who have preceded us and the place where we are going that is explicitly explained in Revelation 21 and 22. And that's what Abraham was looking for. That's what Abel was looking for. And Enoch, Noah, and Sarah, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all these in this chapter, and all God's people. The point that the writer is making to encourage the readers to stay with Christ is that this city is secure and their destiny is sure. You can give up the enticements of this world and worries about suffering in this world because there is a certainty to what lies ahead for us. It's built. It's finished. It's ready. It's waiting. What have we learned from these verses and these people and these opening verses of Hebrews 11? How do we summarize what it means to live by faith? I appreciate what Richard Koken has written. The simple lesson for us today is that living by faith requires us to be patient, to feel like strangers and foreigners in this world because we're longing for heaven, waiting and groaning for the marvelous heavenly city God has prepared for us. We can stop complaining about the hardships we faced and stop expecting things to be perfect now Perfect in our friendships, our careers, our social life, our marriages, and our churches. The eternal joys of life in heaven will make the temporary costs of being a Christian on earth seem trifling. Be patient. Joy is coming. Father, might that be the lesson that we learned today. To look to heaven... To stop looking at this earth as the things that will satisfy us and give us fulfillment. And to look to You and to the glory of heaven and what awaits us in the future. What awaits us in a future that is certain, sure, complete, fully ready. You are ready for us. And it will be a a short time only till we get there. Make us patient as we wait. Make us faithful as we work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.